Hey, everybody. Hey, uh, Jordana, do I have you there from Real Estate Magazine? Hey, Daniel. How's good, it going? good. Um, maybe I'll just do a quick introduction here. Um, just wanted to give everybody a heads up that today we are being uh, graciously co-hosted by Jordana from Real Estate Magazine, which is awesome. They are a publication uh, who provides news and insight on the industry, and I'll allow you to do a probably a better introduction than I'm about to, but. Uh, um, news and insight for the real estate profession for, for mostly professionals. So for realtors and mortgage professionals, um, realestatemagazine.ca is the website. And, um, I've been wanting to do this. I think one of the, when the, when the Twitter spaces first started, it was really kind of just like an off the record conversation for, for realtors and, uh, and mortgage professionals. And, and I want to kind of get back to the spirit of that, at least on, on uh, a monthly basis. So once a month, I'd like to do this kind of I think we're going to call it maybe a realtor roundtable, unless we can come up with something better. But um, and and I want to be sort of part of that panel. I think I kind of miss be you know rather than being a host, more like contributing the conversation. I like getting into the bear versus the bull arguments and and you know whatever it is. And uh, and sometimes it's hard to do that as a host without stepping on anybody's toes. So I was really grateful when when you and I were able to kind of come up with a concept that'll, you know, that has you here as a co-host. And I think, you know, given your background in journalism and uh, you, you know, the exceptional insight that you have in, in the real estate space, I'm really excited to see how this whole thing um, takes off. So, so thanks for joining us today, Jordana. Thanks, Daniel. Um, thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Long time listener, first time contributor. Um, you've got the gist of it pretty, pretty much. Uh, I've been in the hot seat with REM now for seven or eight months. Um, so the industry perspective, I'm still fairly fresh to it, but oh boy, have I learned a lot. Uh, I see the stats every month from CREA and um, the local boards and associations, uh, but I really feel like um, what's happening on the ground and the stories that you have to tell are where the, where the value is. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be here and uh, I have so many questions for you so thank you again for having me yeah uh, our pleasure for sure and um, I think it's interesting right now because we're in kind of what some people it, it is a very uh, divisive period of time in the industry I think because you know prices are ticking up in some markets on a monthly basis uh, but they're the biggest year-over-year drop we've seen from a statistics statistical perspective um, some people want to be bullish about this some people want to be bearish about it um, and I, I'm personally still just trying to figure the whole thing out as well so um, the one thing I am exp especially excited for is that you you know you, you sent me over a message with some really good structure uh, a couple of hours ago so it's nice I, I typically I started these things prepared and then I kind of kind of just fell apart so it's really exciting to get back to the structure so uh, I think I'll probably just let you take it from here if you want I know you have some some really good questions prepared and I, I might just I'll raise my hand and kind of tune in as a as let's call it a, a panelist because um, you have a, a bunch of great speakers here as well um, any other realtors uh, or, or mortgage professionals or anyone who wants to contribute to the conversation just uh, send a speaker request bottom left hand corner and uh, we'd be happy to have you as part of the conversation yeah, absolutely. And I'm so excited to hear from people across the country. Um, Daniel, I, I know uh, you just sent it back to me, but I'm going to send it back to you because we did get the February stats from Korea yesterday. Uh, and I know you had a chance to dig through them. What was it what you were expecting? Were there any surprises that you saw? 
Um, I, I wasn't necessarily surprised, uh, just given, you know, I know I do analyze Toronto data at the beginning of every month and Toronto does skew the national data set more than anyone would like to admit. I think it's really significant. And so we kind of knew that prices were likely going to, to tick up. Um, I, I was a little bit surprised to see that the, you know, the national average, like I always thought, you know, HPI does kind of smooth out the severity of the data points up or down, I think. Um, and to, but to see that basically we've seen the biggest drop in HPI since the um, index was invented and the biggest drop in house prices uh, ever, basically on the average house price. It's hard to, to kind of, you know, when, when Korea is using the average, but I, I can understand why they do because it probably doesn't make sense to, to use a median at a national level. I mean, you kind of have to use an average of the medians, I think, to, to get a decent data point. So anyway, um, I, I was just, it was, it's, it, it's interesting to see. I mean, I think kind of somebody was tweeting about this. I want to say it was maybe Cardi or, or Pierre, but um, the Canadian real estate market has really become a, a volatile asset class since probably 2015. Um, and to see this kind of happening again, like we're comparing this to 2017's price drop, we're comparing it to the nineties price drop. Um, and, and I don't, I don't have context on, I didn't trade through, I traded through the, the 2017 market. So I think maybe I'd be interested to hear others comparison there. Um, but I'd also be really interested to hear what, pe- how people feel this stacks up against the nineties. Um, so if we have any veterans there that could inject some commentary, I think that would be, th- those are, those are really the, 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 my main thoughts on it is like, have we ever been here before or, or is this actually uncharted territory? Um, I'll give people a chance to uh, collect their thoughts, but I also saw that the sales to new listings ratio jumped to, I think, over 58%. Um, and the number of new listing listings dropped 8% month over month in February. Uh, I know that there was a lot of discussion in so many headlines a few months ago um, about rising interest rates leading to sellers flooding the market. <clears throat> and that didn't happen. So, I mean, what's what's going on? What are you guys seeing on the ground? Yeah, I mean, I, I can jump in there. I think um, I I haven't. I, I probably was, um, and maybe having having my foot in my mouth a little bit here, but I, I definitely was anticipating to see to see more uh, distressed supply. And I think it could just be a time thing, but I think it's also I think I really underestimated how how good Canadians are at just hanging on white knuckling, uh, through financial stress. And I think if, you know, if we do get recessionary and we do see, uh, you know, the famous pivot that we talk about on the rate side that, that, uh, you know, as a result of the global economy potentially collapsing, um, you know, a lot of realtors are, are kind of like grave dancing right now, I think a little bit. And, and I don't know if they all know exactly what they're cheering for per se, um, but I think if we do see a, a major recession, I, I mean, yeah, it's going to suck for a lot of people. And, and, but I think that's just going to, it'll make the pain come and go a lot quicker. I think, um, I think you'll see a lot of that financial stress yield fast. And then I think we'll see rates, uh, correctively try and pull us out of a recession. And, and I think that that would ultimately be bullish in the shorter term rather than the, the longer term. Like I think, Typically, I thought the setup was very similar to the 90s that we're probably going to see. It, it was probably going to take us three years to bottom. Um, if, if, if we start seeing more bank failures, and especially if Credit Suisse um, ends up in, in trouble, I think being globally significant, I would probably shorten that to prob- maybe mid to early next or sorry, uh, mid next year, right? 
So anyway, that's that's kind of my thought. Um, and, and others are probably maybe more uh, well versed to discuss it here. And you track power of sales in the GTA pretty closely, I think. Have you seen any uh, notable changes? Uh, yeah, I think a 400% increase. Uh, Peter, you're tracking it as well, right? Like, what are you seeing? I think I think it's 400% year over year, which sounds crazy, but it's still less than 1% of total supply. Yeah, it's, it's nominal. Like, I think the only – we have to sort of check back in terms of what our January numbers are. Everything else – and I, I double-checked mine because yours were a little bit less than mine. But the trend is still clear. Like, January for me was higher than February, but it's, you know, we're, we're, we're still on a the, – the trajectory is still, like, straight up to the right. But, again, it is, like you said, less than 1% of outstanding listings. Um, I think we're actually bang on in the number we picked up. And it's not just the GTA. We're just looking uh, on, on, the, on, the MLS system, on the MLS system for the province. Yeah, and I think um, the important part to to note about that is like power of sales aren't materializing in discounts. Like when people think power of sale, they a lot of people think foreclosure, like what happened in the U.S. And there's a big difference. Like a foreclosure means the lender took possession of the property, which typically takes them a year, and at that point they're usually just want to get rid of the property, and so they don't really have an incentive. They're they're cutting losses at that point in most cases. Power of sale, the lender has a legal obligation to protect the equity of the owner, and so. In that case, um, pr- you don't get a free fall velocity in price, and so that, like, to assume that power of sales could actually bring the market down is actually, and and it was almost like naive of me to use the data point as a bearish data point because it's not necessarily unless we saw a flood and there was a race to the exit. But I think, and and Stephen Pawasi has a really good thread on this. You saw in early COVID, or not early COVID, in early GFC, like um, 2008-ish, beginning of 2008, uh, investors were the ones racing to the exit, people who who still had equity before the banks could even do it. So that's just, I mean, the setup's interesting from my perspective. Uh, Gina, you should, uh, I think Gina's got her hand up here, Gina, hey. if you want to hop in. Hey, Dan. So I just, uh, I wanted to add a little bit to what you said. Um, I, I, there is typically no no deal in the power of sell, sale. Um, although what I've seen um, in my area, so I work in uh, Lower East Side, so EO1, EO2, EO3, and I've seen a few power sales, which again is very, very new in the area. Uh, what I have seen is that they're typically selling for anywhere from 5 to 10% below list price. And I was going to ask, I know you and Peter both track power sales in general have you guys been tracking the sales like the sale prices of those properties at all no it's a great question but i'll see i'll i'll actually see if i can pull the the data point on that while we're on here because it's a really good question thanks um well you do that daniel i'd love to hear from realtors who are working with um potential sellers who are on the fence about listing and what their major concerns are like is it price expectations? Um, what's the reason that people are holding back? Gina, I'd love to hear from you. So I have a couple sellers. So everybody has been used to in the last, you know, prior to last year, everyone was buying before they were selling because they wanted to find the right house. So now because it's not, you know, it's not the best strategy to purchase first and, you know, uh, 
sell afterwards in this type of market it's always a better idea to sell first and then buy they're more reluctant because they're like well what if we don't find our the house the the forever house which usually takes a little bit more time there's more you know specifics and stuff like that so everybody in like in my book of business they're kind of holding back because they don't feel confident that they will find the house that they want because number one, inventory is low. And number two, it always takes a little bit longer to find that, you know, forever home. Interesting. Um, it's March break in Ontario. And I think it was Korea that flagged. They might be expecting a bit of an uptick once we're through the week. Um, I'm keen to hear what uh, you guys think if you know next week you're going to start getting phone calls from people I'm, who are pre-approved for mortgages and they're ready to buy I'm prepping two listings for sale to come on one is next week and the one is the week after that um, and usually it's exactly what you said after the March break people will put their properties up for sale uh, in terms of buyers I was away the week before and when I came back on the weekend I got emails and calls from about five or six of my buyers that are now saying, okay, well, we know inventory is going to pick up, which is very seasonal after the March break in the next, you know, two, three, four weeks after the March break, you see more inventory coming on and they're, you know, getting their pre-approvals redone and ready to go. Interesting. So they just need to pull the trigger. Um, do we have anybody from Vancouver on? I know, uh, I think the resales rose something like 15% there in February. I think we have Jesse uh, in the audience. I'll see if I can bring him up as a speaker. Um, but nobody in, uh, nobody on the panel right now. I'm going to send a couple of speaker requests out there because there's a bunch of guys out here I want to hear from. Um, and I'll see, I'll, maybe I'll send Steve a text as well. But, uh, but nobody, uh, Nobody. Oh, there's Jesse. He's on here as a speaker. Hey, Jesse, hey, what's good. going on? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. Good. Yeah, resale did pick up 15% in January, uh, slightly above the seasonal amount that it should have. Uh, sorry, I think that was for February, actually January and February. So a slight increase in sales above the seasonal norm. Um, I think BC as a whole was like 6%. Like the uptick was like six percent more than it typically increases from February to January. Um, the suburbs were a little more in line with the seasonal average, but like total volume of sales is still sitting like thirty to forty percent below the uh, below the seasonal average. Just that like the increase going into the spring is kind of like outpacing the average a little bit. Um, new listings are running at about half, like literally half, a little bit less than half actually of what they were last year which is just crazy when you think about it. Um, and that's really what's driving our market. Uh, my listing yesterday had 15, 16 offers on it. Um, sold for, well, it's sold firm, but we have a rescission period now. So, but it'll be about 150K higher than what it would have got two months ago. And Jesse, while we've got you, I think, um, I think March break in BC is two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, are you expecting any any big changes once the break is over? Yeah, I would hope to see some more listings come on, but I just really, I don't know, I don't have my hopes up. Um, it's just brutally, brutally low volumes right now. 
Um, personally, I'm not getting the calls to list. Maybe other agents are. I'm not sure, but it's just we're not we're not seeing it. Um, it's pretty tough. So, I mean, the other thing is like if you know sellers start to get some sold over asking flyers in their mail, and you know see some of the price increases, maybe that starts to to bring more inventory on. Um, but you know, a bit of a delayed response there for sure. People usually don't just decide the list within a week or two. It's um, but like for example, like there's a pretty big sale that happened uh, like two weeks ago in a townhouse complex, uh, sold for like 400 over ask and like way more than you know kind of probably should have. And then three people in that townhouse complex immediately listed. Uh, so that just gives you an idea of how sellers are watching the market and they're like, you know, they kind of got their plans to move, but like hey, unless we start to unless they see you know, it's like a good market to sell in, they're not going to list their house. So it's just the, the story all around right now. Yeah, my my big fear and, you know, just being typically bearish is that we end up seeing as a result, of, like if you look at the, the Korea um, national volume curve, like that red bouncy red line that they post in Korea stats every, uh, every month, it, it looks like Canadians respond to economic uncertainty by not sell, like by pausing purchase decisions and, and both on the sale and, and purchase side. Sorry. So just like you see volume completely drop off and then eventually it rebounds and it rebounds hard. Um, my, my, you know, the, the scary part is like, we just saw eight months of probably the lowest volume we've seen in, in a decade. And then I think now with this further economic uncertainty, I don't think most people are going to be like, Oh, I'm just going to, you know, go and, and buy a house or whatever. And so I, I'm my, my big fear for this profession is that even if prices stabilize, which they could, it wouldn't surprise me. I think like realtors are going to get absolutely blown out because I think the number of transactions is going to stay low uh, or continue to trend down potentially and stay that way maybe for until whatever the hell is happening right now stops happening, which seems like it, it it's just getting started. Yeah, I'd agree with that volume like incomes for realtors super super low right now because it's just based on how many sales are going through right not only that but my own board uh the Fraser Valley Real Estate Board we went from 3,300 members three years ago to just about 5,000 now um so and now cut sales volume down like 35 40 percent but you increase members like 70 percent right so there's (laughs) I think there's like 70 percent fewer deals per agent right now than there was a few years ago uh, it's pretty tough. So, and yeah, prices are up a little bit, but still, it's pretty tough. Um, even some of the bigger agents in my market that are typically doing like, you know, 200 ends a year. I know in the fall, like they're averaging kind of like two ends a month, right? So that's slow. And like, that's people who have, you know, $20,000 a month advertising budget. So yeah, those big, yeah, the big clunky machines with the high overhead are the ones that scare me. Actually, I thought it would be like, I think, oh, I think you're going to see a trimming though. Like, I think a lot of those groups are going to downsize because a lot of their agents are kind of like your bottom agents. Like, I think a lot of sort of like, yeah. you know, like a lot of agents on a team would be like your two to five deals a year agents. They're just going to leave the business and fill some of those job vacancies that TIFF wants filled, right? Yeah. Totally, especially like if they just got a big database of weak leads that they're calling and that's kind of where they're trying to get their business from. Like, pretty tough to get those deals right now. Totally, totally. Daniel, uh, Korea was drawing similarities between 2023 and the recovery year of 2019. Um, 
what are you seeing? Um, I mean, uh, we don't, I guess 2019 had a global pandemic the next year and, uh, interest rates hitting the floor. I don't think, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I would assume that if like, it's just so, it's such a hard comp to use. I think, um, if, if 20, if, if COVID didn't happen, we'd probably still be flat from 2019. I honestly really think that like, I think 2017 was the top of our market cycle. If COVID didn't happen, I really feel that way. Disagree. <laughs> Do you like what tell, okay. I'm curious, like what tell, like what, what gave you the indication that things were going to be different? Like I know that volume and price was starting to ramp up pre COVID. Like, yeah, like January, that, that, probably, was, right? that, that was my point, but not meaningfully. Uh, I was seeing in, in my area and parts of like, let's say Scarborough and Toronto, we were looking at in, in the first three months, I was helping some buyers and leg- legitimately, like if you didn't hold back offers and you had three, four on the same day, I, were, I was like, I bought, a, I bought an investment property at the end of 19. And then by the time I closed five months later, I was probably up by close to 150 grand give or take like i think we were going to take off not to the extent we we did but from everything i remember from january february and part of march before they just everyone you know slammed the gates um it, we were in multiples we were basically where we are right now it's just slightly different like just look at the sales numbers for january and february and, and well for the first half of March. Um, I don't think we'd be flat. I think we would, I think we would have been up not drastically in terms of where we ended, but, um, yeah. Okay. That's fair. I I would agree. We're up probably, but like it would have been a mean reversion maybe to like that 6.11% trend. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Like, like like we have to look at like 18 and 19 were for the most part, pretty like we were in recovery mode there for, for, for that year and a half, two years. Right. So especially where we are right Dan, but heading literally heading like january 2020 it was like it was taken off from from my experience from everything we were looking at fair enough fair enough i won't argue that yeah i mean we were i guess we were starting to see it you're right i'm even looking at the data right now and like it was trending up a bit heading into covid and i think covid was there was a bit of a blow off and then it was kind of just the the rates obviously it was just rocky fuel after that right that end and i think that the uh de-urbanization like people just a lot of people moving. Just looking at um, some of the other markets outside of Vancouver and Toronto, uh, I think Calgary, Regina, Saskatoon, St. John stands out as markets where the prices are barely off their peaks. Um, do we have anybody from those markets? I'd love to hear what's happening currently. Yeah, you've got Nevin here from St. John's. I think Scott, uh, yeah, he just jumped on here. Awesome. Yeah, so you've got Saskatoon and St. John's. Let the, let's uh, let these gents go because they, they're always good for uh, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end up browsing Realtor.ca and trying to buy a duplex after this. But anyway, uh, Nevin, you want to jump in here? Yeah, I can go ahead. So what we're seeing right now, um, pricing is you know up year over year, like Q1 just over 6%. But, uh, you know, I really think we're hitting, like we're leveling, we're hitting the peak. Prices, uh, pricing's only up about half a percent over Q4 pricing. So we're really level, but our volume is way, way down. If we have a strong end to March, which I feel 
Uh, we will based on, you know, what I'm seeing at our brokerage in terms of like, uh, you know, contracts set to close. I still think that, you know, volume is going to be down about 25% Q1 compared to Q1 last year. Um, not an interest rate thing, not a lack of demand. There's no inventory. I think we're probably operating with about 30% of the inventory we typically would have. Um, you know, you're only, uh, like someone asked about the sellers. I, I think the question started earlier about, uh, you know, what's the conversation with the sellers. So just a gigantic bottleneck now with, uh, if you're trying to sell your home and you, you can't, you just can't find your, your next home. So you're stuck. Um, and our vacancy rate has to be somewhere around 0%. We don't have a true vacancy rate here because CMHC doesn't understand our market and, uh, just gives us terrible uh terrible data so but i it's got to be close to zero percent there's there's really nothing to read so people are super cautious because you know you can you sell your home you can literally end up homeless so that's what we're facing in this market so i I, at some point that bottleneck has to sort itself out and i don't think we'll have any idea where we stand until that happens because the uh, inventory levels are so incredibly low that it's putting a floor there so I can't tell you if the interest rates are causing issues. But uh, Daniel, as you know, I'm also a builder. I mean, like, I'd say in the last 10 days, I've probably had 15 people reach out to build a house. Like, there seems to be a lot of demand. I can't I can't really put my uh, finger on it because, uh, you know, new construction pricing here is grossly overpriced uh, compared to, the resale market because of construction costs and uh you know five percent mortgage rates i'm shocked that there's as much demand as there seems to be so i really can't figure out where our market's going um like i said the you know i feel that we're plateaued on price but until this bottleneck lifts and we and we start to see more volume go through i don't i really can't tell you where where we sit i think that you know we should have a little little bit of a, a pullback on pricing uh, or stay even. I don't really see a big case for upward momentum in pricing, but uh, but that's about it. But, I mean, right now, I mean, we're going to have a ridiculously low volume for Q1. Any fear based on the, like, are you guys still on that oil market cyclicality? Like, is there any fear based on the, the blow-off we've seen in the past uh, month as a result of? Uh, I'm going to say that the market, I'm going to say that the market, uh, or like locally, uh, you know, everybody's sort of a little behind the times. Like if I had to ask everybody about the oil, like they would think oil is ripping right now. Like they don't, they don't realize that there's been a bit of a blow off because it takes a little while to factor in. And last month, uh, there was a massive announcement with, uh, moving forward with, uh, a major offshore oil development, Bay du Nord. And, you know, that's, a that's, a like, you know, an economic windfall for the province long-term. So, you know, on the street here, people are very upbeat and positive, um, you know, because, uh, you know, I, I think that people are pretty bullish on, on the, uh, on energy, um, you know, despite what's just happened recently. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I mean, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I just, I'm really not certain how sensitive we are to interest rates. Like the last time interest rates were, high like this the market here was absolutely ripping you know it was it was bad in other places but it was the strongest market you know we've ever had so i just think that at our price points we're not that sensitive uh 
to rates and uh i find it a bit shocking because i think there's a lot uh there's a lot of uh a lot of better things to spend money on than houses but uh people seem to disagree with that yeah great insight i think you guys have one of the best um price to income ratios as well in the country so that probably provides a bit of insulation um captain did you want to jump in here do you have a question hey daniel how's it going good you good um i'm actually a longtime follower of yours i love a lot of the data-driven stuff you put out um i'm a cpa uh turned i guess entrepreneur uh, i probably have a similar perspective to daniel in terms of being quite a bit bearish on uh canadian real estate for sure um one thing i was just curious of uh i guess for daniel and maybe other realtors that are similar um what made you kind of turn towards putting out data that, you know, is probably fairly bearish, but, you know, uh, factual and kind of being that type of realtor? Because to me, I think that that's going to benefit you in the long term. I think once people, uh, you know, start looking for realtors that are a bit more, um, you know, putting out proper information and guiding their clients in a proper way. So have you seen kind of an uptick in, you know, uh, just clientele from Twitter and stuff like that. Cause uh, you know, not too many realtors will say, Oh, you know, I'm looking at things being bearish for two to three years. And, you know, you might get an opportunity when uh, rates start to go lower or stabilize. So, so what kind of made you go in that direction and how has it been working for you? Great question, actually. Um, uh, it's a bit off script uh, for, um, but Georgiana, I'm just going to take this one. I think because there's a couple others here who, who, I think could probably answer the question as well. Um, so like with Gina and Peter, but for me, it's, um, I'm, I'm, um, I, I represent primarily investors. And so for me, downside risk is probably like one of the biggest components of that. Um, and, and I got lucky that like, I kind of started from an institutional background and, and obviously it was in a, in a family business that allowed me exposure to a lot of clients that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. And I just really like, I found that, I was surrounded by people who were smarter than me, who were saying they who were fearful of what the market was doing. And I really wanted to get an understanding as to why. And so I started looking at market cycles. I started looking at the nineties that they were talking about. I started looking at what prices were doing. And, um, and a lot of that led to like some, some pretty solid, correct forecasting in 2017. I don't think I, I think I started getting active on Twitter in 2017, kind of like post blow off there. But I mean, the, the funny part is like a lot of people are like, how do you get clients if you're, if you're bearish? The reality is like, I, I think most, especially younger agents or sorry, especially agents on social media tends to skew towards people who are, are younger. And so they're more likely to want to represent buyers. So I, I I barely represent buyers. I mean, I, really only if like it's a, it's a close friend or if it's, a, if it's desk work where I can represent an investor from afar and underwrite the deal and send a home inspector. And so, you know, p- bullishness works to attract buyers who want to get into the asset and ride that, that bull case. But bearishness attracts sellers, people who want to get out of the asset, who are f- fearful of the risk and who are researching the risk associated with the asset and so it's really just the other side of the equation that i think a lot of people just dismiss that that's that's sort of like from a a just purely mathematical perspective um the way that i think about it honestly and i'd I'd be curious to hear i know sam had his hand up um to answer this as well so maybe we'll go go to sam and gina and then maybe circle back if you have any follow-up questions awesome yeah i mean um look uh first and foremost i look at uh posting stats and such um 
as just uh, the bearish or bullish, because I think when you use that prism, it, you first off, you're coming from a very investor focused uh, mindset because in any given market, people always need to buy and people always need to sell. Like when the market was really low in Q4 of 2022, my buyers were not trying to perfectly time the market because, for instance, one of my clients was buying some a condo downtown for his daughter because his daughter was going to UFT and going to law school. So he's not going to try to perfectly time the market. So me talking about how condo play prices at the time had plummeted had no bearing on his need to buy real estate. Uh, I was just posting content and posting what I was seeing on the on the market from both the quantitative side of things, the numbers, the year over year, the month over month, the sales data, the listing figures, all that breaking down the downtown area by neighborhood and bedroom number and per square foot. But uh, also from the qualitative as well. So when you post honest content, uh, whether it's uh, qualitative or quantitative, people can generally pick up on that. And when they have a true need for either buying or selling, they'll give you a sh chance. They might not work with you off the bat, but they'll def definitely uh, give you a shot to sit down with them, whether they're a, a potential seller or to have a coffee chat with them, when they're, whether they're a potential buyer. I mean, I'm sure Dan and Gina can attest to this, but it's hilarious to me because, like, for instance, like I put out a TikTok or a YouTube video talking about how there was 55 failed bidding wars in the last week. And I got a bunch of people celebrating, celebrating me for being a bear and being like one of the good agents. And then a bunch of people calling me like, oh, you're just, you know, you're, you're a desperate real estate bear. You're not doing any business. You just want to shit on the market. And then I post another video talking about how stuff is a bit up month over month. And then I got a whole swath of people calling me a bull because mm -hmm. I don't do enough business. So that's why I'm trying to push up the market. So in my experience, uh, and I'm once again, I'll throw it to Gina, but uh, if you just post the facts as they are, give your experience and be honest with the audience, uh, people will work with you this, irrespective of what the facts will say. And I'll say one last thing. Like I do a series on YouTube where I do pre-construction previews. And there, and I don't do pre-con like Jordan does or as much as Jordan does, obviously, or another, a lot of other agents. So I don't have relationships that I need to maintain. So I'm quite honest about my thoughts on the pre-construction projects. So, for instance, one, one project, I said, hey, this is a pretty bad project. I'm not a big fan of it. I would stay away from it. And guess what? After that video got like a thousand views within two days, people were reaching out to me saying, Hey, do you have a, can you, can you get allocation in that building? Can I buy through you in that building? And I was just shocked because I was like, did you guys not watch the video where you guys found my contact info from, I was telling you, this is not a good project, but people just desperately wanted to buy. So that's just a Gina, would you, you, you want to take, take, take this on? Yeah, sorry, you know what, I had to drop down because I couldn't hear Sam, but uh, what I wanted to say is uh, I, I've been on social media for just over a year now, if really active. Um, I I think that I'm lucky enough to have been, to be around for a very long time, so I didn't depend on social media as a lead source. So I was able to 
speak the way I wanted to speak without being concerned about my business being impacted because I don't have leads because my, my business is repeat referral over the years. Um, and the other thing that I sort of felt I needed to do as I, you know, spoke on how I felt about the market was looking at a lot of the, I started on TikTok. So I looked at a lot of the people that I spoke to as my kids, because my oldest daughter is in her late twenties. So I thought to myself, if I'm advising my daughter, how would I be advising her right now? And it wouldn't be to, it's the right time to buy. And that's how I, I felt I needed to advise people. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I do think that that's, you know, where the future of real estate is going. Uh, I think that people, especially the younger generations, uh, you know, that are, are witnessing housing affordability go like this. I think they're going to be drawn towards people that, you know, are putting out data driven information. Um, I mean, I think people are starting to see through FOMO and, you know, certain things or tools that realtors can use to, you know, develop uh bidding wars and stuff like that it obviously still works but um yeah i, I think that that's kind of where the future of uh you know realtor is going and I, I was just curious yeah to get good feedback from you guys how your social media accounts have you know helped by putting out this proper kind of data like me as a cpa that's pretty much all i look at right so i try to make investment decisions that are not emotional that are just based on data and obviously taking into consideration like qualitative factors as well um I just had one more question, um, or I guess comment. Uh, one thing I noticed with realtors um, and, you know, people in the macro world in general is there's a lot of fallacies, I think, about certain things with real estate. Um, I'm going to address a couple of them, and you guys will probably find them controversial, but I might as well put them out there for a discussion. Um, so one thing I would say that I was kind of surprised at hearing from uh, Daniel is uh, that he expects, you know, based on what might happen in the next, uh, you know, coming months of Credit Suisse and, you know, different stuff in the economy, um, if the recession ends up being fast, that, you know, prices could stabilize in a year from now. But one thing I want to remind people is that a lot of these rate hikes have not even touched the economy. I would say almost most of them. So, like, research shows that rate hikes aren't touching the economy, I think it was before the GFC was 18 months, give or take, or like rate hike would start to work its way through the economy. I think after the G GFC, there was research showing, I think it was like 12 months, give or take. So the way I see things is we're already in a little bit of a bear market, but in reality, most of these rate hikes have not touched the economy. They, they've touched real estate, but the reality is going to be when these rate hikes do hit the economy, you're actually going to see uh, banks really start to tighten their lending at the same time that people lose their jobs and at the same time that inventory has been held off the market. So that's typically how a bear market starts to get going. So these bear markets, when you look at housing affordability, where it is right now, rarely ever last a year to, you know, two years. Um, you know, typically they're three years, four years, give or take. Um and they also typically need lower lower mortgage rates than the previous low to get started. Um, that's what I've seen when looking at GFC, 89, um, Japan, you know, all these previous scenarios where you had uh, bubbles, the rates would go lower after. So I know um, a lot of realtors think that we're at four and a half percent now. And if in, you know, four months they go back to zero, 
that's not going to run into the economy for at least 12 to 18 months, really, even if they cut to zero tomorrow. So and if they cut to zero, it likely means that we're in big trouble. So lower yeah, you rates. Got, you got other things to worry about if we're back at zero. Yeah. And personally, I do think we'll be close to zero. I, I, I think they'll be on their way there in 2024. Um, the indicators that I look at personally see inflation coming down significantly. I know that's a different um, perspective than most people have, but well, I think I, even ba- just base number effect would make that happen. Like, I think we'll yeah. see. Like, I don't know if the, we'll see the three percent, but I think we'll, it's going to drop for sure. Like, most of the inflation was first half of last year, right? Yeah, and I mean, freight prices are down eighty percent in China. I, I do a lot of manufacturing out of China. Um, oil. I mean, if if a recession kicks off, oil might be in the fifties at best. I mean, it's it's already you know moving towards sixty. So. I mean, yeah, based on base effects, you're definitely going to see inflation come down. And every time we have a recession, inflation is brought down significantly, along with rates. That includes the 70s. So um, I think that there's a big fallacy out there that a lot of realtors are like, oh, if, you know, TIFF starts to do the Fed put and and reverse course and and this and that, it's going to be, you know, another boom again. But the pandemic was definitely a one-off event. It's not typically how business cycles work. And uh yeah, so I'm I'm hoping to uh, dispel uh, that uh, that uh, opinion of you know lower rates means the party's back on because I don't see things that way at all. No, for sure. I mean, lower rates means we're in a recession, which means that everybody's getting blown up. And I mean, yeah. Canadians are still levered to the tits, right? So uh, we've got bigger problems to deal with. And I, yeah, I mean, I just I can't like I still the whole thing. I still have a hard time wrapping my head around that. Uh, everybody's just cheering on a recession and they don't even really realize it because they just want interest rates to go down because they think that that's going to like, I mean, I, I actually think that, you know, the 90s setup is interesting. Like the comparison to the 90s setup is interesting because like by 95, you couldn't find somebody who wanted to invest in in real estate. And I think like the bloodbath is going to be bad enough that uh, that's just my thought, but I think people are going to be scared enough and we're not even close to that yet. Right. But I think like, I I mean, there's no like I don't know what the bull case is for the broad economy in the next uh, three years. Like there just isn't one, right? And I don't see how. I think re- like housing will lead um, when we're, when we're in recovery, but I don't even think the word recovery is like we're, like you have to get through the the first R word, which is recession first. Yeah, I'm on the exact same page as you. Basically, I, I just wanted to highlight that uh, the rate decisions that they make now will not be seen for at least twelve months. So. In reality, I mean, I'm in, you know, the weird camp that they should be cutting pretty soon um, because the question is not what is going on now, but where does TIFF and the Bank of Canada see things in 12 months? Is inflation going to be high and is the economy going to be strong? So I, I I, I think that they made a mistake early. They didn't catch inflation. And now they're way too scared to lose control again. So they are, um, they're just going to continue to hike until they see that we're in a recession and then they'll reverse course. But I mean, you know, in 2007 and, and even in the seventies, when we had some data points that we have now, they were already cutting. So a lot, a lot of these hikes are going to be hitting, um, towards the end of the summer and the end of the year. And I think people are going to understand at that point that, the soft landing, no landing camp is just there. There is a really, in my eyes, a zero percent chance of there being a, a no landing or soft landing scenario because you're going to have the fastest tightening cycle we've seen with huge amounts of debt, 
all hitting at once at a time where we already have data that's that, that looks bad so yeah um, for I, sure. I, I do think there'll be a once in a generation generation opportunity though to jump into real estate if you can time it right in the next few years um you know obviously every area is different right like you said the affordability in areas like Saskatoon and stuff like that is is still pretty good in Calgary. So, you know, I'm not too certain on on generational opportunities there. You might be able to find good deals, you know, soon, uh, sooner than other areas. But yeah, I, I just think that's definitely a disconnect with realtors and the economy is just thinking lower rates equals, you know, party back on and, and, and the recency bias with the pandemic. No, everything's binary for agents, right? It's like rate, like rates down, prices up. Like there's no, like our prices only go up or down. They can't go sideways for, for five years, right? Listen, I, I just want to chime in uh, real quick. Rates mean nothing when the economy is in the shitter, okay? Like we had low rates, you know, 2014 through 2019, really, like, you know, relatively speaking, it did nothing for our market. Like 2018 was the lowest sales volume ever on record here because the economy sucked. Rates do not matter when the economy is bad. That's just the reality. For sure. For sure. Uh, Daniel, let me me jump in here because Buddy mentioned uh, Saskatoon and affordability. Um, Give you my take on what's going on in Saskatchewan. much like uh, Nevin was talking about out east, uh, our sales in February were bang on with the 10-year average. If you take out COVID, I'll, I'll, everything I'll say will be taking those two years out of it because those those numbers are so totally skewed. But our, our sales data was, was bang on to the 10-year average. But our new listing, just like everybody's been saying, our new listing data has been 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 30% lower and pretty much everything is tracking down except for the real entry level like apartment style condominiums here actually have seen a, a big rebound and I actually think part of that is because people stopped building them um, over the last several years and the supply was finally absorbed to a place where it just made sense that you could you know you could actually get some some of your capital back out of, uh, out of them. Um, but our market is, is definitely, uh, you know, maintain its affordability. Our prices are up ever so slightly. And I don't think that our prices, I don't see any reason why our prices will come down if supply stays low. Um, to, to Nevin's point that he just made about 2017, 2018, our market was also, those were actually two, challenging years in our market as well and when i look back at the statistics our inventory was quite high in those two years prices dropped about 10 percent and um so i think prices will stay stable in saskatoon and and, and saskatchewan if uh, inventory stays low there might even be a little bit of appreciation in where our market is right now is if a house comes on the i had a house full multiple offers two days ago entry-level price point, uh, very nice house. So those things still exist, but if it's a junky house and it's overpriced, it's just like always, it, it, it's sitting. And I think the last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, keep this, keep it short, is uh, the Saskatchewan market is, you know, if you believe the statistics and the uh, the experts that we're, we're going to lead the, the country in economic growth and um, 
And uh, our job market is very, very strong here. We have some of the lowest unemployment. So for, for those reasons, I think that our market is going to be somewhat, call it safe, um, but we also are a very affordable price point. So it's not like we have a lot of room to fall. Scott, are you seeing um, are you seeing a lot of people, uh, you know, migrate from areas like the GTA in Toronto into Saskatoon? Because my business partner recently actually, um, and he likely could have, you know, stretched a bit and afforded a place in uh, Toronto. But yeah, he did make the, the decision to go to Saskatoon. Um, and, you know, he, he likes it there. Uh, the affordability is great. So I'm, I'm wondering, because you guys might have a pretty solid, I mean, you guys might have, you know, people migrating from, uh, uh, you know, Toronto and the GTA making, you know, pretty considerable salaries that are working from home. Maybe they're able to, like my business partner, we do work uh, digitally. Are, are, you, are you seeing that kind of transition as well a lot still? Yeah, we, we are. Um, I, I, my phone rang a lot more during COVID from people moving from the GTA um, coming out here. And I think a lot of that was kind of due to lockdowns and, and, and COVID policy. Uh, just they didn't realize how how crowded their street was until everybody was, was on it at the same time t- type of thing. Um, but yeah, like I, I, I run quite a few YouTube videos and, and I'm, I'm starting to talk more and more about that there's a statistic out there that says you can buy six houses in Saskatoon for what you can buy one house in Toronto. So, I mean, that right there is reason enough to move here. And our average salary is somewhere in the neighborhood of 72,000, according to the statistics. Now, I I don't know what that equates to um, in Toronto, but I I bet it's not a whole lot less. Um, So you, you definitely get that quality of life moving out here. um, But you also get winter. (laughs) Yeah, we have we have winter here too, and it sucks. So I don't wouldn't. I mean, like I actually, I prefer the uh, prairie winter. It's much drier than uh, than Toronto, but uh, at least at least in Calgary. Um, anyway, Jordana, actually, I think Vass and Peter wanted to jump in here quickly, and then uh, then maybe we'll get back to your your organized line of questioning. I apologize, we went on. Uh, I'm, I, I get a little carried away with the tangents here. So I just I actually had two things, and it's from my fellow CPA there. I think it's Captain Balding. Um, so the one frustration I have is with people, realtors making calls on the future of the market is if you really think about it, I think most realtors have figured out if you're default bullish, you're going to be more correct than you're going to be wrong. Whereas some of us that try to be reasonable, we're probably more incorrect than they are. So I think they've figured out that just being default bullish works. And I think that's why we're seeing so much of it. Do you guys agree or not? I mean, it makes sense, yeah. Like, it, it is easier to be be right, like especially for most people who aren't like aren't researching it and compartmentalizing like their calls into like you can be bearish for a year at a time. Like, I will be bullish when this when I feel the bottom is in. Like, I really never really presented myself as a bull because I I still felt that there was downside risk in the market and I was obviously not wrong um, at that period of time. But there would be a point when I am bullish, and and so I, I think most agents probably are right. Like you know, they would be 6.11% bullish because that's the average price growth. Like, I think it's just easier. You're right. It is. They would default to, to what's, you know, like that most likely to be correct. Let me jump in there too on that. I also think the majority of agents don't actually put out good content. It's all very self-absorbed. Look at me. I just listed another house. I just sold another house. 
but they they've been told that they have to do more than that so the only thing they know to do and and both of the the cpas there make good points i mean they just they just they're just looking for another sale oh it's it's simultaneously always the best time to sell and the best time to buy because they need a client and I think that for those agents that are, you know, whether they're bullish or bearish, but just being giving accurate data, I think that you'll find that more often than not, people will respect it. And if you do it on a consistent, you know, whether it's weekly or daily like you or monthly like myself, um, I think people begin to see a pattern and they, I think they can appreciate that you're bringing facts, not just looking for a, a, another sale. And there's some agents that, that you can just tell no matter what they say, they're just looking for another sale. It's my opinion. Yeah. yeah well said for sure. Fair. So last question, I, I did join a little bit later and I don't know if it was covered, but I did want to bring it up here uh, because I just want to make sure this is not my own bias. So I've been fairly active in Toronto, New York region since the beginning of the year. And if it's one thing I've noticed, I think we front ran the price increases for the entire spring. And from what I'm feeling right now is I'm seeing a lot of bidding wars actually flop and we're flatlining on price. If anything, we've actually hit the ceiling. And in some cases I'm, I'm feeling it's coming down. And just, I wanted to see if this, is this my own bias or is anybody feeling the same thing in the GTA? Well, uh, Maybe this is not going to directly answer your question, uh, but uh, I, what I've noticed is um, that bidding success rate has definitely increased in uh, March compared to February and then February compared to January. Um, but what I'm not seeing is simply uh, bidding success rate is different than the bidding uh, success rate uh, at a higher price, right? Like things that are getting multiple offers still are in my opinion for the most part obviously i'm generalizing but i would probably have to say seven eight times out of ten are still selling at a price they would have sold otherwise if they were just priced above market value or you know the typical pricing strategy where you price it above what you're actually willing to accept right so i'm not sure if that directly answers your question but um i'm not seeing personally in the in the toronto area gta particularly even with condos the bidding strategy really push up prices necessarily, although the success rate has gone up. Okay, I think the success statistically the success rate is climbing, but the sales to list price ratio isn't climbing. Like, not not meaningfully anyway. It just inched up above a hundred percent on the sale to list price ratio, and I think uh, you know 30, over thirty percent of properties are selling over asking now. The, the funnier part is like I think it's it's all from my perspective directly correlated to. You know, I mean, the mar the market is a hundred percent at the mercy of the the Canada five year and fixed interest rates right now. Like, fixed rates were low in January, and so we saw people rush in, and those people now have urgency because they they have a fixed rate. They're racing against the clock. If they buy, if they if they delay their purchase, it could cost them twenty, fifty, or a hundred thousand dollars on a five year mortgage term. And so, when people are buying against, like in in Last year, everybody was on variable. Sixty percent of the market was on variable, so nobody really cared. There was no sense of urgency because the rate was going to go up regardless. And so, January rate fixed rates were low. A lot of people are in, in a rush in February to, to use those rates. Now, all of a sudden, fixed rates are up. Anybody who's who's going to get a rate today, they're just either choosing not to, they're choosing to wait, um, or they're they're not in a hurry to to blow it out because the market like rates didn't go up between 
like the rates went up January to February. So people, there was a sense of urgency. So that, that's my perspective on the matter. And I think that if you just watch what happens with fixed rates, you can almost see what the demand is going to be like in the next month. The market's very temperamental right now based on that. That's my thought. Anyway, um, Peter, did you want to uh, jump in here before we get back to uh, Jordana's uh, questions? Yeah, I'll jump in quickly. Uh, Vass, I have seen a little bit in terms of what you're saying. It's probably my main theory that we probably did front load a lot of it, but, you know, uh, the, like Dan said, the five-year drops 80, 90 basis points in, in a couple of weeks and stays like that, then, you know, it, it could be beneficial towards some of those buyers on the sidelines. But um, back to Captain's point on, uh, I agree with, again, the, the delayed response to, to, the, to the interest rates. I don't even think it was the interest rates that caused the majority of the decline last year. I think it was all psychological towards the interest rates. Um, you know, we were, July we bottomed out at around 1.1 million. Today, last month, we were at 1.1 million. And, you know, by July, the Bank of Canada was maybe at 2% on increase in rates. So even without that, like, there's there's no opportunity for any delayed effect there. Uh, so, yeah, I believe it was just all completely psychological. Um. Everyone's making really interesting points. Uh, I love being a listener. I, I'm interested. I know the challenges ahead for the industry or what challenges might be ahead are pretty obvious. Um, Daniel, I'll start with you. What opportunities do you anticipate the next few months could bring um, on a more positive note? And I'd love to hear from others in the room. Yeah, I mean, my perspective is is this. If you know, good, good assets appreciate. And so I think that like I represent primarily investors. So if you're buying properties that, that have good yield, good cash flow, and this is much to, to the captain's point. Um, I'm going to call him the captain now. And, and I just had to rotate him out as a speaker to get another question in here. But um, the, um, if you're buying with good cash on cash, like a property, if you're buying uh, good cash on cash at five and a half percent interest rates, the, the asset, if your thesis is that rates are going to come down even to four and a half, I don't think they're going to zero, but I think they might, I think they, we might normalize in fours. I don't like, I think a safe market is where rates normalize in the fours. Um, and so that, like, if you look at what happened to good investment properties during COVID, they went up just as much, if not more than what all the other random shit went up. Like all of this speculative activity, these houses going up, like, you know, people buy, like, so if you're buying a, you know, if you can buy something at a, at a seven cap right now, and when you see cap rate compression in one of these major speculative bubbles, and you're flipping it out to the market at a four cap in 10 years, which is what I'm anticipating doing with everything that I'm buying today, you just made a, a way better deal than anybody who bought, except maybe that you don't have the tax uh, advantage of the primary residence, you, you just did a way better deal than anybody else, especially when you account for the fact that the, that rents are accelerating the income portion of your, of your, uh, investment, uh, of, you know, of your yield is, is exploding right now. Rents are up like, so, so, you know, let, let's use London as an example. Cause I just did it for the landlord, um, seminar prices are down, like, let's say between 15 and 20% and rents are up over 20%. Like, it's a no brainer from my perspective that you just have to have the, the, you know, the, the boldness to jump in against this brutal interest rate environment and buy decent investments. And you have to have the willingness and the, and, and the detachment from this speculative bullshit that we've been doing for the past several years to find and 
the right investment. And most people think it's just going to fall in their lap because some realtor is going to be like, this is a good idea. Like it's a bull market. Prices always go up, whatever. But the reality is like good deals are, are made, not found. And, and so to me, it's like if, if you're really, really pounding the pavement, looking for good deals and, and working out how to make existing deals good, there's a ton of opportunity already in the market. Um, and I only expect that to get better over the next couple of years. It's like if you're modeling a deal and it's like, oh, it doesn't make sense for a five year uh, at five and a half percent interest. Well, OK, does it make sense on a on a 25 year? Because that's how long you should be buying real estate for at a, a blended rate of uh you know, four and a half percent. Okay. Then now all of a sudden you we're now we're talking. So, so that's to me, long, people with long-term outlooks who are buying real estate for the right reasons, which is to, to produce income or be a yielding asset with some long-term capital appreciation. There's already opportunity on the table for those, those people. Justin, I'd love to hear uh, what you think. Yeah, I absolutely love this conversation. Um, I think it was a very poignant question. I, I've enjoyed listening to the different speakers and thoughts across the entire platform. I think we're having a macroeconomic discuss, discussion about rates. And what's I happening. can't hear Justin. Is it oh. is it me or? I can hear him, but uh, but you, it, I, he might need to log in and back out. Yeah, I can, yeah. I can, I can give me a second. Yeah, so, yes, sorry, Justin. If you can just jump on and off. Uh, It's just a thing that happens with spaces, by the way, Jordana. Okay. It's like, yeah, it's, it's super inconvenient. Um, then hopefully while, while we wait for yeah. him, can I just ask you something? You know how you're talking about the investor grade deals? Uh, yeah. Can you just break that down in terms of like dollar values? Are we talking mom and pop investment or are you talking yeah. bigger? I think, I, I think that like uh, the best yields right now that I'm seeing are like in stuff that's, that's too small for like the institutions who, who like institutions are like bigger investors right now are still, they want to be active at least in multifamily and in industrial um, that, you know, and a lot of that's as a result of CMHC financing. Like you can still get uh, rates in the fours on uh, 10 plus or sorry, I guess it's actually five plus units. So for, through MLI select um, you can get like we're seeing rates in the fours with like 40 year amortizations. Um, so you can cash flow a, a larger multifamily problem is that you can't really get a, a six unit or six plus unit in most markets as a mom and pop investor. But what we're seeing work really well for these types of in, like for smaller investors is like, and everybody knows I'm, I'm obsessed with Cornwall, Ontario. So, but you know, buying in markets like Cornwall and getting, you know, um, or, or like it could be anything. It could be Saskatoon. It could be, you know, uh, there's a lot of a lot of other markets all over the country that where it makes sense. But if you're buying sort of like from a six to eight percent cap rate, um, and if you can buy and kind of put together that four to six contiguous units, and then flip it out with CMHC uh, debt, um, huge huge opportunity. Like actually, like an insane amount of opportunity. There's probably no better potential deal that you could do in the market right now. Um, and, and so so that's from my perspective, like the big opportunity. And then I think you'd eventually be selling those deals to these larger landlords. Like, you know, you hear about core as an example, buying like a billion dollars worth of real estate. Like I know guys who are doing like assembling portfolios and flipping them to groups of that scale because they want exposure. And then the other, the, the final component to that, especially if you're in the Ontario market is bill 23. It's like, if you're buying a duplex or even just a large, if you're buying large single family homes and you can get two of them side by side and now put three units in each of them, then you could take that out with CMHC um, 
you know, the CMHC MLI select. So they're, they're, th- those are kind of the opportunities. And yeah, they are mom and pop, I would say. I think you can do everything I just described under a million bucks, which I would say is accessible to mom and pop. Like we have a 10 unit under contract in the province of Ontario. It's in the middle of nowhere in Ontario, but 10 unit under contract for under a million bucks and it's going through CMHC. And th- this is great. And listen, I just want to, sorry for hijacking this, just last question for you from this mom and pop investor perspective. It is on topic. It's like, what's the upside here? What are your thoughts on MTSAs because of Bill 23 and trying to buy anything detached, semi-detached, whatever, where you could potentially be part of an assembly in the future? Because I think that multiple is probably, again, it's a bit speculative, but if you can use it as housing and potentially get the upside on zoning in the future, I think that's a huge opportunity well. for sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, the challenge is like, that's developing and I'm like, not really a good developer. I'm, I'm a good investor, I think. And, and so like... I, you know, if it was like, if Daryl was here, I think he is in the audience somewhere. Like, um, I like that would be a great deal for Daryl to do. Or like, if you're more of a developer, like for sure. But, but for, for me as an investor, it's like, it's a bit out of scope for me. And it's probably, I'd be getting into too high of a risk as a result of that from my perspective. But I, I, I won't dispute that it's a huge opportunity. It's just not something I would do. And most mom and pops probably shouldn't be right. Uh, Justin, you're back. You want to jump? Uh, you want to finish off your your killer monologue? There? <laughs> you're just waiting for me to say something just crazy so you can repost it. Jordana, can you hear him now? I can hear him. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, nice to meet you, Jordana. Yeah, so I'll make it pretty concise. Um, just because of the time, I think the greatest opportunity right now is for people to become phys- fiscally educated, you know, business efficient and opportunity and relationship driven. Right. I think we went through a very long period of time, much longer than just the pandemic. Um, you know, I'm in London, Ontario, and I can tell you the market's been unhinged since 2017. We really when we started seeing the attention. And I think a lot of people succeeded in the bull market just because they had a pulse and they were showing up and they were falling into deals without really understanding the metrics and how to analyze what a deal actually looks like from an investment standpoint. And people started day trading real estate, which also became very, very dangerous. They'd go to dinner parties, they'd watch the flipping shows, they'd hear about burring a property, and it just became in vogue and pre-construction sales fell right into that. And I think that became very, very dangerous. And I think what's happening right now is people are having to tighten their belts. Obviously, housing got blasted first. But we know it's coming across many other industries. The job market was also unhinged for a couple of years where it was impossible to get talent because you can get paid to just stay home. And now all of a sudden jobs are being cut by the thousands across North America and people are realizing that you should be employable and you should have skills and, you know, being a solvent contributor to your economy and your community is going to be more important than ever as a real estate purchaser or investor. I think we're having a great macroeconomic discussion, but fun fact for those of you that aren't paying attention, Volkswagen just launched an EV plant in southwestern Ontario, Amazon set up shop right outside of London, and there's a lot of people that are migrating to our territory from across the entire globe because Canada is still an incredibly safe place to live and raise your family despite all of our problems. I think we succeed in spite of our politics, not because of them. Because I do think we're a very creative and entrepreneurial community, but I think we went through too much time where nobody was actually creating value. And I'll land my plane on this. What Daniel said is bang on. I think the opportunity is creating the opportunity. If you're waiting for it to fall in your lap, you are already out of business. You just don't know it yet. So I'll just leave it at that. 
Uh, great insight. Justin, I'd love to hear more what's going on on the ground in London. I think I saw that prices there were down 25% for the peak. But uh, Gabriel, I'll throw it over to you because you've got your hand up. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think the investment side is pretty interesting in the sense of just hearing everyone's opinion on it. Um, I'll come from the opposite end 100%. Uh, my primary client tends to be first-time buyers, primary residents, um, very different from the, the typical investment type property. Um, but I, I think the original question was, what are people really excited about? And the one thing that I'm really excited about, at least you know, from talking to people who are buying and are looking to get into their first homes or even their, their move-up homes, is I think this market, if you are pre-qualified, and that's a big if, of course, um, leads a really big opportunity to actually shop for homes properly. Um, I think over the past two or three years, we were getting used to the fact that buyers had to settle for properties. And, you know, assuming the fact that the next few months we do see some sort of uptick in inventory, because that's the problem we're having right now, it's just the lack of quality listings is really big. Um, a lot of my first time buyers are going to have the opportunity to negotiate and get properties. I think that were, you know, I would consider them deals. Uh, even over the past two months, we've been able to look at properties that a year ago were selling over $100,000 over on a condo. And even on the condo, end, I think prices month over month have raised up. But I'm not seeing levels of competition at all that are, you know, excessive. Like we're dealing with at most one or two offers per these condos. And that really gives opportunity for buyers who are on the fence about the market. And again, not to try to create any, any FOMO to it. But people who are, are generally qualified and are looking for, the, for their house in their price point for themselves to live in. I think it's a huge opportunity. We actually can shop for houses. We can be very picky about houses or about condos. And uh, we can really look for what they're looking for at home, which I, over the past two years felt like it was impossible at times. But uh, yeah, that's my two cents. What, um, from a consumer perspective, what properties are popular right now? Is it still the, the more affordable price points? Is it, is it investment properties? Um, what are you guys seeing? I'll quickly jump in again, but it looks like the properties that I'm seeing, like the big headlines of multiple offers that are going, I would think much more than I thought they were going to sell for, are your move up buyers, your, your freehold townhouses, your detached homes. They're the ones seeing that really strong action. Um, I'm more in the condo space and I'm not really seeing a ton of offer dates for condos or the ones that are on offer dates tend not to be as successful. Um, and they're not seeing, I wouldn't say that they're going for aggressive prices condos right now. Even the really nice, um, well-staged, well-marketed condos, I've not seen aggressive price points for stuff like that. Uh, but it seems like it's more of the, maybe the move-up buyer, uh, the more, um, I would say, your, your second home type property. It looks like it's been a little bit more um, action right now. Interesting. Thanks, Gabriel. Um, Peter, you want to chime in? No, I, I would agree. Working with some buyers, and it's probably because I'm biased because I've been working with buyers right now looking at uh, detached homes. And, you know, I'm I'm looking at uh, every time multiple offers we've been seeing uh, or offer dates, we are seeing multiples as well, too. One we picked up, it was actually, you know, one day on market. There was only four showings on the whole day, and we still ended up with three offers. So, uh, you know, almost everyone decided to jump in. So that's that's where I'm seeing most of the competition. Um, but again, it's probably just due to my experience in the first, you know, 12 weeks of the year. Are you seeing any changes in the in the types of buyers? Is it 
investors, um, first-time home buyers, who's buying right now? Uh, I'm looking at end users at this point. For the most part, um, you know, I could see that uh, coming out of the, the the lockdown in 2020, it was for for me, it was a lot of move-up buyers. Then once everyone saw the market moving, a lot more of investors into 2021. Um, but for me, currently right now, it's just people looking for uh, to move up. Vass, you want to weigh in? Yeah, just a qu- so same thing with theater. All end users, you obviously have your investors with cash just sitting on the sidelines, but I'm not bringing anything to them right now that even makes sense. Everybody's kind of focusing on assemblies. Oh, well, not a, not focusing on assemblies, but Bill 23, I think, is where the attention is, at least from where I sit. But in terms of types of properties that I have found extremely sought after, anything with multi-generational potential is huge right now, at least from... I had a listing, 3,100 square feet. It had the potential for multi-generational living, big basement, all that stuff. And I'm still being hounded by some of the buyers from that listing because I have another one, a neighboring listing that I'm going to be uh, bringing to market in May. Similar layout, similar thing. And again, anything that's multi-generational where you can have parents, grandparents, and, and kids live in harmony, it's big. So that means decent parking and lots of space. So that's kind of what I wanted to add. I, I would jump in on that last and say anything with a separate entrance in a, in a basement apartment is for sure. Yeah, those have always been big, but I'm noticing now it's like it's becoming more than just the basement apartment. Like we're going for size now. And I think this is kind of like where Brampton was years ago, where they went for size. Like you want th- like at least 3,000 square feet. And I'm kind of seeing a resurgence in that a little bit in certain areas. Like you're not going to see that in Richmond Hill as much, but you're going to see it in Scarborough. Like a 3,000 square foot home in Scarborough, it's going to be sought after like a lot. And Vas, I know you can only speak to your personal experience but are these families that have lived together before or are they maybe condensing now because the cost of living just keeps getting higher so i'd be speculating but just based on anecdotes of people that have called me every week hey is this listing coming out or whatever like they've given me their personal life stories and i think it's just people know that you know their kids are finishing up university they have nowhere to go so they just need more space so they seem like they've accepted the fact that they're going to be living with them. Uh, obviously, I can't speak if this is wide, like market-wide, but from what I see, I think that's just the writing on the wall. I saw a similar thing as well with a listing that I had live uh, a couple weeks back. Um, it was interesting. Well, it was in the a nice pocket detached homes in, in North York, and we had a decent amount of action on it, and the person who ended up buying the property was a similar thing. She lived down the street. She wanted her mother to be nearby. Um, so it, it was a similar thing. She wants family to be nearby there. Uh, if they can have their kids, you know, be upstairs and the mother downstairs, whatever it may be. Um, but it was also interesting the fact that um, there was a lot of interest in the property. But the I think the most amount of interest was from investors just asking about it. But in the end, they weren't putting their money where their mouth is. They were just kind of snooping around, waiting for maybe an opportunity to get it at a de-stressed you know, de- price. I think the amount of builders and the amount of uh, mom and pop investors that came up with, you know, I would say significantly lower than market value for a property that was really interesting. So even though 60% of the property uh, viewers were investors, in the end, the person who was going to buy for personal use was the one that was going to come up with market value. So that, that was an interesting point that I saw at least last month. Interesting about the, the multi-generational homes. I know it's, 
um, becoming a trend, especially in the big cities. I'm wondering, are there any other anomalies people are seeing in their market and something that, you know, we're not seeing from a wider lens when we look at the national statistics? Not everyone all at once. I think maybe interprovincial migration is probably like one of the other big topics to, to, to think about. Um, you know, that like whether or not we see second order effects of that. So we see, and we can talk about this after and we'll let Tyson jump in because I saw his hand go up. But, you know, we know that like the GTA is the primary um, place that people land from an immigration perspective, but Ontario is actually seeing um, provincial outflow. So, okay, somebody is here, get becomes a PR and then do they get added to that interprovincial migration stream? And will we continue to see affordability push people out of the GTA and into some of these sub markets that are seeing uh, almost like a Renaissance period, like Calgary, Halifax, um, some of the more affordable Canadian cities that'll be, you know, sort of are, are really playing a larger role in the, in the national economy now. So that, that's a big like thought from my perspective. Um, but curious to hear what Tyson had to say here too. Yeah. Ironically on that point, Dan, uh, it's. I just sent a, a client uh, to Nevin, uh, who sold a 960 square foot bungalow in Guelph and walked out and bought a three bedroom house on the ocean, new build, and pocketed you know 200 grand. So um, that yeah, that inter provincial provincial um, migration piece is huge. I just wanted to chat really briefly on on the the senior move. I, I work a lot in that space with older clients and. Um, they're they're really not moving right now, um, both from a, a, a listing and an in inventory position, but also them looking at it as sort of a final cash out piece, uh, you know, selling their last property and, and moving to a rental situation. And it's just been so difficult having pricing conversations um, with the with the reduced prices. And, uh, you know, Guelph is down about 24% from peak and them seeing what other people got. And that's been a really tough pill to swallow. Um, so what you're seeing is a lot more stickiness in the, in the listing prices. Um, it was, a, a I found a, a later market to slow down. Uh, they didn't feel the, the interest rate squeeze at the top end, um, you know, being mortgage free, uh, and the buyers of their properties being mortgage free for the most part. Um, so we were late to slow down, but now with other activity having picked up, uh, particularly in some of the low to mid price points, I'm just getting beat up with some of the, the senior listings that we've got for, for exactly those reasons. Is I, out of curiosity is our seniors like how, what, how dependent are they on equity for retirement from your perspective? Oh. Yeah, like I know it's I know it's anecdotal for sure, and I, I know you, you don't love that, but um, yeah, a lot of the people are looking at at using that equity to fund you know their five thousand to six thousand dollar a month private retirement residences, and you know they see it as their last opportunity to make money, and a lot of these people are are you know have, have relied on you know good pensions from from long term employers and you know the CPP OAS. Uh, and and to, to the extent that, you know, those sustain people pretty well, that's great. But I mean, we have a lot of people that are living, like a lot of my clients are like in their 80s to 90s and they, 
to an extent, they weren't planning on living this long. Uh, the generation before them certainly didn't. And, um, you know, so they're really squeezed because, uh, you know, they a lot of them are having a hard time unlocking equity from their properties and they don't really have they've exhausted a lot of their savings. They don't have a lot of income coming in so that the house is sort of the last uh, the last means of, of being able to pay for, you know, a, a good last however many years. Um, you know, and I don't think a lot of them really began with sort of the thought that they'd ever find themselves in that situation. Yeah. I'm so curious as to, cause like I, when Trudeau put out that thing about multi-generational, um, housing or whatever, I thought it was like, I'm just wondering if the government has data on how much stress the pension system is going to be under over the next several years and how much, uh, stress the um, retirement system is going to be under as we have, you know, I think a third of our population approaching the age of 70, right. Or maybe, or I guess a quarter of our population. Sorry. So, and I just, just that, that they came up with that grant for basically people to move their like aging parents into their houses. I just thought it was, I am really interested to see how the whole thing transpires. And, and Peter, you and I talk about this a lot and we've wanted to do a space on it, like try and get Mike Moffat on here as a guest to really get an understanding for those. He, he still like says, that. He, he's, he's still not uh, saying yes at this point. Yeah, fair enough. But, fair enough. Uh, but, but like the demographic shift to me is just like, that's the big, it's a huge question mark, right? I know, right? It's, it's one thing that I just rack my brain on because like I see from my perspective, like while Tyson may work with, those, you know, move down or downsizing boomers, let's say. My experience is the opposite. Like, they're aging in place. And I think even the city of Toronto just even wrote a report a few years ago on that saying that that's what they're doing. They're just riding it out. Like, my parents have three empty bedrooms now, and it's three and a half thousand square feet. And I'm like, you know, pardon my language, but sell the fucking house, <laughs> you know? Like, but, you know, my dad says it's going to take six of you to take me out of here. And, you know, he's morbid like that, but um, that's how yeah. it is. No, yeah, it's so funny, though. Like, I feel like many say that, and maybe they're right, but, like, you don't ultimately always have the luxury of, of um, aging in place like that. But right? at the same time, like, look at the rise of mortgages, too, right? And Yeah, and- yeah, no, for sure. I Yeah, I'm interested to see, but I guess, like, the question becomes, like, to me, it's just, like, de- like it's just delay onset or delay onsetting that, that problem, which is like, I do think that there is like an excess supply of like square footage. Like, I think like I, I could be wrong, but I do eventually think that like, as those come on, like I can't wait to fourplex all of them, but like, I don't think like anyone in our generation is lining up to buy all of those houses to live in them. Like really like who, who nobody can afford them from our generation, but also like nobody really wants a 3000 square foot, four bedroom house. Like we like our kids. Like, you know, like we, we don't have, you know, books or record collections that we need to like have libraries for. Like, it's just like, I just funny from my perspective. Like, I, and I just think like, depending on when that happens from like cr- chronologically, it could actually be like another kind of like down leg, like catalyst. Um, go, go to Abby and then Evan here. Yeah. Isn't majority of the reason why people are aging in place though, just because there's such a small number of spaces in like uh, retirement homes and stuff like that and waiting lists are so long that you pretty much have no choice but to age in place. There, yeah, switching costs. I would too, agree right? with that. There are, some, there are limited options. Like I know in York region where I am, there's probably, um, you know, four or five options within, let's say, even the, the Markham Stovall community that, that 
that will allow for or that will take accommodate you know your 55 plus let's say and the other thing too is just that notion that we're living for so much longer so how long can you carry that cost like it if you can ride out living in your place as long as you can then you obviously don't have to pay as much so um i think that's a big part of it as well yeah that's another good point like i think uh what's his name in france macron is actually looking at extending today they announced the um He's trying to unilaterally extend the retirement age. Just a, a stat to throw out there. I know you, some people have got their hands up, but I think it was, um, I've got it in front of me. Paul Smetanen, who's the CEO of the Canadian Center for Economic Analysis, said there's something like 7 million spare bedrooms in Toronto and the Golden Horseshoe region because um, our elderly population is overhoused. Um, Nevin, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I, I just have a different take on that whole situation. So um, I've sold um, four and a half, because I came in on the second half, um, of senior development, senior condo development. So I got to deal a lot over the last 10 years um, with elderly population. And um, aging in place is generally wanted by um by families and by the um i guess and by the elderly they want to stay in their home so like it's like there's definitely a problem with lack of options for you know assisted living and whatnot but then there's a tremendous amount that you know really will fight a tooth and nail like peter's dad you know uh, that like that is really really commonplace but what i would say is i don't think there's a lot of excess square footage like i've got a completely different opinion than dan like you know where i sit and, and i think you know you'd see it a lot in atlantic canada i'll be i'll be curious as to what scott says like people want square footage like i think this concept of lack of square footage that's very much a, that i think that's cost driven daniel in in like southern ontario of it's not even something people can afford or think about. They don't, they don't organize their life that way. I think in a lot of the country, people still want square footage. Like I, I build a lot of big homes for, you know, people in their thirties and twenties and early forties. It's, um, you know, I don't think we actually have that amount of excess there. I think what we really have is zoning issues consistently across the country to build the type of product and stuff needed for the older population, because there's a massive, there's a massive demand for, let's say, low maintenance property that's not assisted living. You know, elderly who can still somewhat take care of themselves, but they can't really deal with snow, you know, uh, lawn care, exterior maintenance, these kind of issues. And, you know, you really need some like high density, think like seniors bungalows and stuff. And the zoning, from what I've seen in a lot of, you know, in a lot of the country doesn't really allow that. It, you know, you're you're into single family detached and you're also into like you know high rise high density and that middle level zoning is really missing in a lot of spots and that's really the demand that is there from um you know the older population and because it's not there uh aging in place is their is really their their main option i think that this is a much larger issue yeah great point yeah, great point. Vassy, you want to chime in? So, uh, 
on Facebook, I have a pretty large downsize, downsizing campaign that I've been running for the last three to four months. I'm talking over a thousand leads. I've had probably 500 conversation with, conversations with different downsizers. The punchline is kind of what Nevin said. So it's sure in some cases it's switching costs, but it's actually there's just lack of adequate housing. So most of these people want a newish thousand square foot bungalow to downsize to. The product simply doesn't exist. And most people are just not willing to go into a condo plus with the risk of maintenance fees and your neighbors and tenants versus end users and all this stuff. So there's just nothing out there. Like like Peter, same thing. Like in York region, especially where we live in Markham or Stovall, there, there's nothing. There's one community in a golf course. They want Ballantry. That's it. Ballantry is, I talk about it. I talk about Swan Lake. That's all they want. Yeah. They want Ballantry and they want Swan Lake. Exactly. I talked to one guy yesterday and he's like, I want to go there. I'll pay the million bucks, but they don't allow fences in the back and my grandkids can't run around. So I'm not buying it. So, okay, fine. But the point is effectively after 500 conversations, this is what I've learned. And I have actually acted on downsizers and pretty much everybody I've worked with so far. I had one reverse mortgage where they were in over their head and uh, they had to sell because uh, the reverse mortgage was getting jacked up. Uh, similar situation with another one, their mortgage is coming up for renewal, so they have to sell. And uh, yeah, so that's the story. Faz, you can send everybody to me. <laughs> okay. Justin, go ahead. Yeah, I, th- I think Nevin brought up a very interesting point, right? I think as we're having these discussions, when I said fiscal conservancy and efficiency of business, I mean, that's across everything from policy making to how we're building housing to how we're selling housing and, and doing things collectively as a community. There's one thing I was speaking about today with somebody when they're asking about opportunity buys in our territory. And I was saying new home construction, like the builders are in an economic position where they're taking projects offline and they're doing everything to move units and giving insane incentives. And I think there's going to be a window for the building or the new home community where owning a new home is going to be a luxury, in my opinion, past 2028, 2030, just because we are just not seeing the economics make sense from a development perspective. And it's easy to sit on one side of the aisle or the other blame the policymakers or blame the builders for not bringing the projects online. But ultimately, like this is a problem that needs to get solved. And I think creating the right type of assets to build communities is going to be imperative because like Nevin was saying, you get people that want to move, they don't have the options or they don't have the capacity or willingness to drive or get to the markets where affordability is going to be something that's in place for them. Not to mention the people that are unhoused and, and literally are looking for that social assistance, right? Like, I think the machine itself is incredibly inefficient. I think the policies that have been in place have been in places for generations and aren't built for the speed at which the world is actually working today. I'm optimistic that the age of technology and conversations like this will bring that to the forefront. I think the population base is going to be much more educated, but I think we have to come together and stop treating this like a team sport, like the Leafs versus the Habs, where we're just blaming each other and we're not actually coming up with tangent solutions. Daniel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, 
Just wanted to see if can you um, accept uh, Beth's uh, speaker request? Every time I accept it, it just uh, drops off. But anyway, if you want to give it a yeah, shot, just see if I she did. can get I, in. Okay, I accepted her, and then yeah, I failed again. lost okay, her again. Um, yeah, no, I, I I think the insight from everybody is is great, and there's a couple of comments as well and messages that people um, have sent me, just saying like you know seniors don't want to go in seniors' houses. I think um, Justice Queen posted that like less than seven percent of seniors end up in seniors homes totally get that i guess my my thing is like isn't there something between like it, I, I think aging in place is great and i think it should happen and i think that it might be one of the reasons we're seeing consolidation of households in a lot of cases um and that sort of multi-generational thing that that trudeau had tweeted out um but the the th- the other pieces like for those that aren't that aren't moving in with in-laws or or, or family or um or into seniors' homes, uh, do they have to stay in two-story, four-bedroom houses? Like, because I do think that there is an excess of square footage, right? Like, there's this map. Uh, I'll, I'll see if I can uh, tweet it and post it in the nest, but it shows like how much of their house people actually use. Um, it, it just basically is like a heat map, right? And it's like, I, I mean, for for a two-person household, uh, you know, who aren't exceptionally mobile, right? Like, they're not as physically active. They're not chasing kids around the house or sending kids to other rooms to do stuff or whatever like you know can we not have an in-between solution where you know baby boomers can live in bungalows and adult lifestyle communities and whatever and tyson i know you have a great insight on what's going on in that market but like i think that that's that like there's an undersupply there and you know when you look at bill 23 and the impact that it's going to potentially have on housing and people adding like i actually think like if you look at some of the, the, the average four bedroom home and like, you know, uh, you know, maybe your Ballantrae is like an, a bad example because it's super rural, but like a Thornhill or something like that, where it's like a four, you know, uh, two story, four bedroom, like that's to me is like a beautiful up down duplex, if not like a fourplex realistically of like, you look at like the houses that are being cut up in the annex into four units. Um, they're not that much bigger, right? 3000 square feet, maybe. Um, but we can't access that supply. And like, it's morbid to say, but are you just waiting for all the owners to die to, so that you can add multiple units to these or like, is it because they can't switch yes. into something? Yeah. I think you are right at this point. Like that's really what's probably happening. I, I, right, Peter? I think, I think, yeah, I think the way they refer to it was population turnover. A nice way of saying when boomers die. Right. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I, I guess it's just like a weird economic thesis from my perspective, but I guess, it also like does make sense because you kind of like it makes way for the new, you know, like the old dies off and it makes way for the new. And I, I guess Canada is one of the few places on earth that our, our average age is actually grow, getting younger and we're not experiencing some of these major demographic like witherings that, that other countries are seeing. So perhaps I should just be grateful about it and shut up. Uh, but I'm just, I'm just, but, but, all I want to do is just fourplex everything. So I'm just waiting for these, all these houses to come up on the cheap. Right. But Daniel, what you're talking about with fourplex and everything is bringing in mid density. Right. Really. And I mean, that's yeah, like, sure. you know, you don't have to, you know, get old people out of their four bedroom homes and then fourplex it to do that. Like we can do new developments that way. But if you notice, well, like, the economics you know, aren't as good though. Right. Like if I, if I'm fourplexing like some boomers place, I'm going to spend like a hundred bucks a foot. Whereas like if I'm building it new, I'm going to spend three or $400 a foot. But, right? Yeah. But so. I'm, t- I'm talking about on mass in the market. I'm not talking about you as like doing it yourself, like a developer. But, yeah. But I think like, I like, sorry to interrupt you, but like, I, I'm just like looking at what's happening in Ontario right now. And I'm like, if it was going to happen with an at scale solution, it would have like the government has failed. I think the, we, we've also not given developers like 
or builders what they need from a, um, a labor standpoint to like, there's another bottleneck. Like I feel like DIY is like the only solution that we haven't really given enough opportunity to like, or, or like it might be the only solution left. Right. And what about the expanding housing um, initiative that they're doing with multiplexes now? Like that's still under, I think under, review the, the city of toronto one yeah i yeah, mean well that's yeah. just basically i think like i don't know people are saying they were working on that policy before bill 23 but like the reality is like it's probably a response to bill 23 because they're trying to like be like oh we're sorry like can we have the keys back please but you know i think like it's to me it's the same thing right it's like yeah like hell yeah let's just give everybody the ability to, to stuff units into houses like sorry but like we we missed our chance to do this right like well let's just do it wrong at this point yeah, uh, no, that's completely right. Because again, we look at the city of Toronto, and like eighty percent of transactions are detached or condo. So like, there's nothing really else out there in terms of viability within the four one six. Yeah, uh, absolutely. But what I, I guess back to what Vass was saying with his five hundred conversations from his leads, like what they're look, what these people are looking for to get out of these homes to open this up. I get this is where I guess I'm trying to go, is like smallish, newish bungalow type you know like mid-density type living like there needs to be a real push put on that and i bet you if you talk to if you talk to policymakers and you know politicians and people a bit like this is not on the radar as the housing crisis it is not on the radar it's all about affordability that young people can't afford to buy a house or whatnot that's an issue don't get me wrong but this is all connected i guess is what i'm trying to say it's a bigger issue that and that is across the country okay like housing affordability isn't a problem in parts of the country like it's not where scott is it's not where i am it's not in Halifax. like there are markets housing affordability is not a problem but this aging in place you know um you know i guess lack you know over square footage um you know where it's not being utilized you can't get people into those homes because it creates sprawl you know there's a lot of issues from this this is the biggest issue i think that we can address and it opens up items because you're going to go in and buy that four bedroom house and put a fourplex in and whatever like you said uh, you know to to deal with that issue but like this is sort of the catalyst to fix some of this stuff because they're not going to leave with the current solutions so you've got to wait for them to die to do it and I think if we want to really solve the solution, we really need to get active on that. And that is like it, it that one is that is a uh, housing problem. That's a coast to coast problem. Yeah, totally agree. Abby, hop in. Here. I think uh, one of the questions that we should be asking, though, is like, where is the breakdown? Because you would think that developers would want to start making these like it's in such high demand. How much does it really take to I don't know make a condo building more accessible for retirement um like is it that big of a change and even with zoning and all that like is that really that far off like it's kind of the same thing isn't it i I don't think they want the condo that's that's the difference like they they don't want they don't want condos they want bungalows but you can ask dan i i know they want newer bungalows they want exactly they want newer bungalows and I know some of the investors Dan works with and they're heavy hitters and you can ask every single one. They're going to maximize the amount of square feet. They're going to put on a lot to get the maximum amount of money, economies of scale, all that stuff. Nobody's going to build bungalows. So just monetarily, it makes no sense to build them. That's why they're not going to build them. But bungalows have maintenance to them. Isn't the whole point to get out of maintaining a property? Like you, I guess if you had like a maintenance company in there. Well, when you see the... Yeah. Go ahead, from, from what I see, most of these people, they don't, 
none of them are really strapped for cash. They just want a primary bedroom on the first floor. That's all they want. They would even take a detached with that setup and they would just eat the extra square footage. So I don't think it's a maintenance issue. They just don't want to live in a condo. They don't want to have the shared walls, the noise and all that stuff. They're used to certain things. They want their little garden. That's kind of like 90% of them. Nevin, uh, back to you. Yeah, so and there is a mechanism for this. It's land use condominiums. So this is what we developed. I've built this stuff and sold it, and it, the demand has been incredible. Um, back to, I guess, to answering your question, like, well, why don't developers build it? Because, it, you know, if the zone is single-family residential, you can't build it. And then if the zone is uh, set up for the condo buildings, it, it turns into a, you know, what Vasa with the with these investors where it's maximum square footage, maximum yield, this condo, the, the this needs to be controlled with zoning where what you get is mid density, which would be this. And from the lack of maintenance, yeah, it's it that is handled through a condominium corporation, your exterior maintenance, or that's certainly how we dealt with it, you know, snow removal, lawn care, some exterior maintenance and stuff. The fees are significantly less than in large structures and buildings. The insurance is completely different. And I mean, this is the solution. If you talk to anybody 70 years old, this is exactly the solution that they want. Um, but it, you know, if you have a zoning where you can build bungalows or you can build a 60 story condo tower, you're going to get a condo tower. The zoning has to address this. Uh, and, you know, it, this is this mid-level density stuff. And nothing is really set up for that. Like you said, what Peter said, was it, 80 or 90% of, of transactions are either single-family detached or condo? Like that, like it, it's, it's, it, very yeah, bi- so, it's very binary right now. Specifically to the 416, it's, it's somewhere in the range of 78 to 80% is probably uh, a condo or a detached house. And then, then I would say that the, the municipal or city governments also, they apply ridiculous development standards to this stuff. So I, Daniel's familiar with a development I'm working on. I have an eight acre piece in the city. Um, very nice. I was going to, I was putting some small apartment buildings on there, wheelchair accessible homes, seniors bungalows. I had a great layout done. Uh, everything looks great. It looks like that's going to go up in flames because what the city's requirements are going to be for infrastructure and hydrology and everything. I'm basically going to have to create like a, a four acre lake to develop an eight acre site and, you know, probably upgrade roads and stuff like this is needed so bad in our market. We're an aging. We have a bad population pyramid here. This is really needed. And the city won't look at the need that's required. They'll apply some complete asinine climate change model to this particular piece of land. And they've completely torched the development. And this is the stuff that developers are, are facing all across the country. Like, that is not unique to St. John's. That is a problem across the country. And I can't speak specifically to Toronto, but I can tell you, you get into to smaller cities and other municipalities, like, it is constantly using nonsense to blow up development. And particularly at this mid-level density, it's like they don't really know how to assess it. They're, you know, um, so, like I said, this is where I see that, you know, we're really bottlenecked in our housing supply. And, and I do think it's a coast to coast issue. It's yeah, for sure. Coast to coast issue. Go ahead, Keaton. Um, I'm over here in Vancouver and I got a couple just minor things, but uh, there's an eight unit apartment building being torn down in Kitsilano and they were going to be replacing it with three detached homes. Um, 
And it's one of the most like beautiful areas in the country to live, maybe in the world. Uh, there's lots of uh, like people, people will overpay in that area and brag about it. Like they will just, it's, it's worth it. That's what they'll do. And we're still going to replace eight apartment units with three detached homes. And I've got my parents who have a corner lot in Port Moody and another, another municipality. And it's on, they got two driveways on, you know, two roads and this huge 12,000 square foot lot with a house on the front, 30% of it. And so I just told them, cut your backyard off and sell it. You literally just have to run a fence down this thing. Hired architects, they went back and forth. How many readings now and all this other junk about speed bumps and sewage updates and everything, which is completely unneeded. It's been 14 months to literally figure out that we can just draw a line down this back of the house. They're still dealing with it to, to give a, a 5,500 square foot detached lot with 45 foot frontage in a neighborhood surrounded by these lots. So it's, a big issue on the Vancouver side as well. It's like, it's just, I think developers would love to just be able to build anything without the hassle and the fines and all that kind of junk. It's just, they're all just backed up and it's just ridiculous at this point. We're struggling here too. And I we've got no supply anywhere. Fair enough. Um, oh, sorry. I, I just, uh, I thought we had somebody else with a hand up there, but um, I think uh, yeah, Tyson, you want to um, you want to jump in here, and then I think we'll, we'll probably try and wrap up here. Um, I think I feel like we've had we've had a really good conversation, so um, I don't know if there's much more to add here. Um, but hop in, Tyson, and then we'll uh, drive us home, man. Yeah, no pressure. No, I was just a, uh, another comment just on why those bungalows aren't being built. You know, I find that a lot of the people in order to give up the house that they've been in for so long, they kind of want it all. And, and whether it's the fees or whether it's the location, like the only reason my development that I work out of works so well is because it's central to the city. Like it's on transit, it's close to the university, but it's a land lease. So the fees are higher. And so with that, you have to absorb that extra cost. Um, and, and it kept the, the, the development cost down because the, the land wasn't part of the, the deal. Um, it was sort of deeded to the builder. And I think, you know, when you look at some of these people doing mid to, to small scale development on Twitter or you talk to people, like the numbers just don't work when you factor in that land value. And so it, it's, it is just a matter of that utility of the land and, and what you can do with it. And obviously bungalows bring the, the, the least utility to that space. So if it's not going to be a situation where the land is, free or essentially free you're you're relegated to these tertiary communities and, and then it becomes a matter of like do you want the house or do you want to drive you know an hour to your grandkids hockey game in a, a snowstorm so again it's just it's the same type of stuff that everyone else is hearing on this on the senior front but the only reason i've found some of the stuff that works works really well is because the, the land isn't a, a component Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, the, the land lease piece, um, the, uh, Steve Saracen posted in the comments that, uh, you know, and where, where I'm from in Georgina, they have one and it's like, it's almost like a, I want to say like a trailer park, but like, it's not, but it's, you know, it's like almost like double wide, it's more, more modular homes, like not a, not a, a super permanent built form, let's call it. Um, and, um, they're, but it's but it's a beautiful place. Like landscaping's great. Uh, no overhead electrical wires, which is like really remarkable. Like you don't notice how like gaudy the the overheads are are in, in Canadian real estate until you now like now that you're conscious of it, you're really gonna gonna 
you'll never be able to unsee it now that I've mentioned it to you. But um, so they're all, all buried wires, um, just like, and it's all on uh, communal well and septic. So they have their own, own onsite sewage system. Um, the problem is like, you're not, and it, this goes back to like what Nevin was saying, like you're not seeing policy uh, designed to make things like that happen. Like, you know, it, it wouldn't really be hard to use rural land effectively to build out modular or even like it, it completely impermanent, like literally trailer parks are actually a decent solution to like you're any, like in the States, it, it, Canada, yeah, climate's a bit of a, a barrier to entry there, but like in the States you're seeing it, like it's actually a affordable housing solution for broke seniors like this or not even broke but like middle class you know middle income seniors like and it's just like not i don't know if it's just been dismissed here in canada because because of climate maybe that's a portion but but the other pieces maybe um like if if we just are so obsessed with being middle class here like everybody's driving leased bends and has their their mcmansion that they'll never pay off and whatever like and that maybe we like that Canada just thinks it's too good for it. I don't know. It's just it's weird to me that things like this have just been dismissed when they're actually like practical solutions. Um, anyway, I, I don't. If there's anything I uh, anything else that needs to be added, uh, if anybody has any burning desires, just send your hand up or just unmute yourself and uh, and give her. But otherwise, I think we're good. I think I think it's next week. Actually, I don't know if I have a topic for next week, but I think on the 30th, I have Adam on here. He wants to do a space with me about what's wrong with the real estate industry, which I think is going to be hilarious. Is that next week? No, yeah, two weeks. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we'll do next week, but um, I'm open to suggestions. So if anybody wants to, uh, I don't know. Well, when I, once I share this uh, recording, if somebody wants to let me know what they what we should talk about next week, that'd be sweet. And then otherwise, I think we're good. I really appreciate this. I, I, hopefully, we can do this on a monthly basis. If everybody enjoyed it, I think it's good. Just shooting the shit with a bunch of realtor friends and figuring out what's going on in the market. And Jordana, thank you very much for uh, for graciously co-hosting and keeping us organized. And uh, I, I would love to, to, to make this a monthly thing. So um, thank you all and have a wonderful weekend. Yeah, thanks, guys. I'm glad it was kept mostly real estate talk, which is not what you find in other spaces. So yeah, yeah. Clean. Yeah, last week was uh, was still pretty wild. So anyway, see you all. Have a good one. Thanks, guys. Have-